0: If you'd like to go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Job, we are going to be starting a new sermon series today, this Sunday, going through the book of Job, and it's kind of in the middle of the Bible, if you open up the Psalms, it's the book right before Psalms, so it's pretty easy to find, and we are unsure of how long it will take to get through this Book because it's such an unusual uh, format. There's it's poetry. Uh, after the first three chapters or first two chapters, it turns into poetry, and it's uh, very difficult to say how much ground we're going to be able to cover on a week-to-week basis, but we are going to go through the whole book and, and cover it. So we titled this sermon series, The Book of Job, God and Suffering, because that is the heart of this book. It's a message about why there is suffer- suffering and specifically among the righteous. Uh, we'll get into that as we go through this, the first five verses, but let's take a look now. Uh, this is Job 1, 1 through 5, so just the first five verses. This really is the introduction to the book of Job and the introduction to the man, Job, that is at the center of, of all the action. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we begin this new book, we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to illuminate these words, this truth. Father, we ask that we would rightly see what is contained in your word and that we were able to apply it to our lives. We know your word is is timeless. It speaks to, to all people in every generation, and so we fully expect that it will speak to us today. So we pray for these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, summer is upon us, and this is the time when families will often go on vacations, and sometimes they have to cover a lot of ground. There's a lot of traveling, so sometimes it involves getting in a vehicle and going for several miles, several hours. And if you have young children, or if you remember when you had young children, or if you remember when you yourself were a young child, you might remember that one of the more common questions that children ask on these long vacations is, how much longer until we get there? Very common. If you hear that from your kids, it's normal. Very normal. How much longer until we get there? Because kids, especially at young ages, don't, have a full grasp on the concept of time and distance and and how that all works together, especially when you're on interstate travel. So they will ask the question, how much longer until we get there? And the parents will usually say something like two and a half hours. And then a moment later they'll say, how much longer until we get there? And the parent will say, still about two and a half hours. And that doesn't make sense because they've been watching all these cars go by and the scenery whiz by and we're moving so fast. They don't understand that that we haven't progressed in the last 40 seconds. So they'll they'll ask again, how much longer until we get there? And if there is more than one sibling, sometimes they join forces and you might even get the chant how much longer? How much longer? Maybe even some, some secret uh, jostling from, from behind. And it's at this point where parents usually say something like, please don't ask how much longer until we get there. I will let you know. And that's usually the end of it. And the reason parents do this is because they know that if they don't put it into it, the children will continually ask that question. Continually. Now when it's children in the backseat asking how much longer till we get there, and when that's continual, it can be kind of irritating after a while. But when it comes to serving, obeying, and worshiping God, continual is a good thing. In fact, we're commanded to continually worship and serve God. Job continually worshiped. God, unceasingly. Now this morning we're going to be introduced to this man named Job. We're going to be given some information, not a lot, but one of the things we are given is that he worshipped continually. He worshipped continually. We're going to see that saving faith is always continual faith. And we're also going to see that continual faith is necessary for glorifying God in the midst of suffering let's take a look at the first five verses this is the introduction to Job and it's really the introduction to the whole book there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job and that man was blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them and when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. There was a man in the na- in the land of Ooz in the Hebrew, it's ous. so it's pretty close to the original language. Ooz. So a man, somewhat anonymous. We're, we're not given the typical introductory formula. Remember, as we've gone our way, th- made our way through Genesis, we've seen that a lot. We've seen someone introduced, and then it says, you know, Isaac, son of Abraham, or Abraham, son of Terah. You'll, you'll see that introductory formula that gives the lineage. Sometimes we saw the the whole um, generational list of everybody that came before the next character or the next person that's being introduced. We don't have that here. So Job is cut off from any kind of lineage or bloodline or family. We don't see that. Some have said this anonymity is so that the reader can more easily relate to Job as we Watch him go through this experience, but he is a man. He's a real man. Job is not some fictional character that's being told about a legend uh, that is designed to be be communicated around campfires late at night. Uh, he was a real man who really lost everything and experienced suffering. In other words, this happened, and it, it pains me to even make these kind of comments, but believe it or not, there are critical scholars and others professing to be followers of Jesus Christ who argue that that Job is uh, simply legend or myth. Let's go ahead and turn to Scripture to verify what the Bible says about Job. This is in the context of God speaking to Jerusalem about the coming judgment. In Ezekiel 14, 14, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. And then a little further on down, Ezekiel 14 20, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. So clearly, in the in the book of Ezekiel, Job is a real man. He, He was a real person. He sat right alongside Noah and Daniel who are also real people. The New Testament also references Job as, a, Job as a real person who demonstrated steadfastness under trial. James and Brother Jesus states in James 5.11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, of the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So clearly, James expects his readers to be familiar with the man Job and expects them to understand he was a real person. And then finally Paul quotes the book of Job twice. Romans 11.35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? That's a quote of Job 41.11. And then 1 Corinthians 3.19, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And that's a quote from Job 5.13. So again, Paul quotes Job and assumes that his readers understand that that really happened. So Job is relatively anonymous, but very real. This is a historical account of a man who lost everything. So the same people that call this book a legend or myth are the same ones, unfortunately, that try to convince people that other parts of the scriptures are... Not true, and they do so at their own peril, and they will have to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account. So, Job, real man, in the land of Uz. This was a, a rather large region. We don't know exactly. We can't pinpoint the exact location of of where Uz was. Uh, it seems to be east of the Jordan River, so so east and southeast of the Jordan in the Arabian Desert, somewhere around in there. Um, as I said, the more the, the, the further we go back in history, the more difficult it is to verify locations. So this is a real event. When did it take place? Most likely during the pre-Mosaic, so pre-Exodus, but post-flood time period. So right about the time of the Patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we're very familiar with the, the, the time of, of those guys. We just looked at Genesis around the same time is when Job lived and experienced this. Well, how do we know that? First of all, like Genesis, there's no mention of a priesthood, of a tabernacle, of a temple, no mention of festival days like Passover. So nothing like that. And that would indicate that it's pre-Mosaic. We see Job also offering his own burnt offerings to God. So he's acting as his own priest. He's acting as mediator between himself and, and his family and God. So once again, that tells us There is no priesthood established yet. Uh, A God-fearing, God-honoring person would not not follow God's commands on how to offer burnt offerings. Job's wealth is measured in livestock. This is very congruent with the patriarchal period. If you wanted to display or explain how wealthy someone, you mentioned their animals. How many? What kind? Uh, That's how they measured that in a very... uh, nomadic lifestyle. Some of the geographic names, Sheba, Uz, they're consistent with the patriarchal period. Job lived to be around 200 years old. So Terah, Abraham's father, lived to be 205. Um, Isaac lived to be 180. So Job's lifespan is consistent with that time period of the patriarchs. Not pre-flood, remember they lived to be 6, 7, 800 years old. And not uh, so much that we see today, and even post-flood, but it's during that transition period after the flood, but during the patriarchs, where there were these somewhat extended lifespans. So once again, that's evidence that Job lived during the patriarchal time. And there are other reasons to to lead us to believe, but we could just keep listing them. I think that's sufficient. So that's the who and where and when. So Job's character is described for us. Look at this, blameless, upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That's a long list. One would have done. blameless. That, that would have been enough. We've got quite a few descriptors. And we need to remember, we're not talking about sinless perfection. Only Jesus walked the earth and was sinlessly perfect, but wholeheartedly deserved, uh, devoted to God. So Job did not have a divided heart. He wholeheartedly followed and served and feared God the Lord. He did not have one foot in faith and the other foot in the world. He didn't pray to God when he needed something and then when everything was running smoothly, he just kind of put God in the background. No. No. He was blameless. He had an undivided heart. Upright. Morally upright in character. This is the guy you wanted to do business with. This is the guy you wanted to enter into contract with. This is the guy you wanted to buy and sell from. This is the guy that you knew was not going to cheat you with dishonest scales or make promises that he couldn't deliver on. He was upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. He knew his place in creation. God was God, he was the creator. Excuse me. God was God, he was the creator. Job was the creation. God was God, he was the man. God was in charge. Job existed by grace. He had a humble submission towards God at all times. And he knew the difference between good and evil, and his practice was to turn away from evil. Good and evil is defined by God. So he avoided it. He stayed away from it. He would not practice it or walk in evil ways. So all this is important. This fourfold description of Job's character, repeatedly hammering away, blameless, feared God, upright. I mean, all these things. It's important because the, the 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 book here is describing who Job was and his character. This is important because when everything comes crashing down, we need to understand and have this anchor point. It is not. Because Job did something wrong. This is foundational for understanding the book. It's one of the keys that unlocks the meaning of this book. So we've got to understand that. When everything is taken away, it is not a punishment for Job's wrongdoing. Now this is the argument that some of his friends are going to make. But that's not what's going on. Verse 2, seven sons and three daughters, both both numbers are are numbers that symbolize completeness. Um, It's been noted that this would have been the ideal family in the ancient Near East, the the ideal offspring combination. And then verse 3, list of animals and servants, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants. So sheep provided clothing and food, this was a big deal in the ancient Near East during nomadic patriarchal times. You needed food. You needed clothing. Couldn't run to the store and buy it. You made it. You manufactured it. You crafted it. Camels. They were very impressive to own. Not everybody had camels. Not everybody had these beasts of burden. He had 3,000. So that tells us a little bit about his level of wealth. It also tells us that Job invaded uh, Joe participated in, in caravan trade. These camels weren't just for decoration. He used them. They, he was able to, to trade with, with far off places, and this was part of what made him wealthy. Oxen, you know, a yoke, one yoke of oxen was, could, could plow a certain acreage. 500 yoke of oxen, we're talking about a very large area that could be cultivated and produce grain. And then it says, so this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. Because of his wealth, because of his prestige, he had a reputation. And it was known all over the land. This guy was, was kind of a big deal. He, he was well known because of all these things. And then verse 4, we're giving a detail about their family practice. Each of Job's sons would hold feast days on their respective birthdays. When it says on his day, that's what it means. His day meaning his birthday. So these were birthday parties, and they would invite all the rest of the, the brothers and the sisters, and they would participate in some feasting. And the, the purpose of this is not to show that they were engaging in uh, frivolous or extravagant living. Yes, they were wealthy. The purpose of this is to, to show the closeness of the family ties and to show also their, their wealth. Remember, the ESV heading I think here is Job's character and wealth. That's a good heading. That's what we're establishing and that's what these verses are about. They're trying to show, look, this, this man had a lot both uh, in terms of family and in terms of wealth and possessions. Now, why is that important? Again, because when everything uh, comes crashing down, we need to understand he's losing everything. He's losing a lot. There was a lot to lose. And that's what this is showing us. These birthday parties. Uh, verse five, remember this is uh, and it's a time period before the establishment of the Old Covenant Priesthood, so Job is taking point in his family and he's acting as as the family priest and he is the one offering, burnt offering sacrifices for atonement on behalf of his family. He was the mediator between uh, the family and, and God. And it says there, in case any of his children had sinned, unintentionally specifically it says maybe they've cursed God in their hearts perhaps they've done that cursing God becomes the testing point here at the beginning of the book Uh, you'll note later Satan states that Job will curse God to his face so that's the litmus test Will God curse God, or will or excuse me? Will Job curse God, or will Job remain faithful? That's that's going to be the pivot point to determine if Job passed or failed, um, and that makes sense. Cursing God would be the opposite of worshiping God, so that's Satan's goal. He wants to flip it around so that Job curses God instead of worshiping. In fact, even later on in chapter two, his own wife will encourage him to curse God and be done with it and then the last phrase thus Job did continually so everything that was described here he did continually he was blameless and upright continually he worshipped God continually this was not a one and done the offering of sacrifices this vigilant desire to maintain a right relationship with God was not something that happened once in a while, but continually. Job was the real deal. He, he did not leave a, a double life. There was no wavering with Job. I mean, come on, Scripture places him right beside Noah and Daniel. Um, that should tell us something. This was a righteous man and he lived as righteously as possible, as righteously as humanly possible before God. So that's the picture that is presented to us in the first five chapters. And I want us to focus on the continual faith that Job had during this time. And I want to draw out a couple applications. Number one, establishing the fact that Job is a righteous man. Now, Job has been suffered. Uh, If you're familiar with this book, you know what's coming. It's not pretty. And so the book is aimed at answering the question, why do the righteous suffer? Not broadly and generally, why is there suffering or evil in the world, but specifically, narrowly, why do the righteous suffer? So when everything falls apart, the reader needs to understand it is not because Job did something wrong. I, I hit on that earlier, just a moment ago, but I'm, I'm reemphasizing it. The reason Job suffers is not because God is dealing out retributive justice for some wrongdoing or some evil that that Job had committed. So that the question of the book that's being answered is why do the righteous suffer? In other words, I'm doing everything I can to live before God as faithful as I possibly can, and all this junky stuff is happening to me, why? Okay, that's the question that's going to be addressed. So number one, this opening introduction is establishing that Job was a righteous man. Number two, the other thing that these first five verses show us is that Job's relationship with God was living and active before everything came crashing down. Job's steadfast faith in God was living and active before the suffering came. So, I mean, we can, we can read the passage again. Before the suffering comes, here he is. He's presented to us as a very righteous man. Everything's running along kind of smoothly, humming along, clicking along. The revenue's coming in. The, the kids are doing great. Uh, the, the livestock are, are producing. The grain is yielding. He's becoming wealthier and wealthier. Everything's going really well. And as they were running smoothly and peacefully for Job, he was continually worshiping and following after God to the best of his ability. This is important to understand. He was continually worshiping God, continually being faithful before all this stuff happened. No complaining, no grumbling, no intermittent worship of God. Again, not a one and done. He didn't presume on his relationship with God. He, he wasn't uh, saying, well, everything seems to be going fine. I think I'll just hit autopilot and just kind of live my life. He didn't assume that God was always going to be there or that God was always going to watch out for him. No, he was on his knees and he was continually worshiping God. God was not an afterthought for Job. God, Job did not think, well, if I have time, I guess I'll, I'll worship God, but I'm just crazy busy right now. I've got, a lot of, I've got a lot of things to manage here. I'm an important man. If I have time, I guess I'll see what I can do as far as worshiping the Lord. No, that's not it. Why is this so important? It's important to understand that he was worshiping God continually so that when the suffering came, he could glorify God with his response. When he was hit in the face by the back truck going 75 miles an hour, he could turn around and offer a God-glorifying response. This is critical. It's important for us to see this. We need to know that Job's response didn't just materialize out of thin air. Job wasn't kind of doing a one-and-done, intermittent worship of God, or, you know, I know he's always there, but I'm not always there for him type of thing. And then when all the suffering came, he just kind of, you know, pulled himself up and said, okay, now I'm ready to face this with a godly response. No. No, he he wouldn't have been able to, to pull it up together if he had not been continually worshiping God the response that we're going to see from him which is remarkable is not something that he was able to manufacture on the spot it was only because he had been continually walking with the Lord I hope we understand that if there's any question about what I'm saying let me let me spell it out If we expect to respond to this Mac level, MAC truck in the face level type of suffering, if we expect to respond to that in a God glorifying manner, then we must have a firm faith foundation. We must have a strong relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ before it arrives. Not scramble after it when it when it happens, before it arrives. For those of you that have broken a bone, you know what that's like, maybe a limb, like an arm or a leg, uh, some kind of extremity. If you've had a cast on for an extended period of time, you know that when the cast comes off, you're, you're not ready right then to go run the marathon with, with the cast that came off the leg the same day. You're, you're not ready to, to, to power lift your max on, on the day that the arm cast comes off, right? Because it's atrophied. It's not there. If you go to use it, it's just not going to be available. It's the same way with responding to suffering. If, if we have a cast on our on our faith, if, if we've been immobile, if we've not been living and active and, and working and exercising that faith muscle before the suffering comes, and when it comes, we're gonna we're gonna look for some kind of godly response. It's just not going to be there. It's not going to be available. And we won't be able to to craft it on the spot. In 1854, Stonewall Jackson, if you remember, he's one of the Confederate generals of the Civil War, he lost his wife and son on the same day. The son was born stillborn and then the wife died very shortly after. And he wrote this letter to his sister in response to, to that suffering. Quote, I have been called to pass through the deep waters of affliction, but all has been satisfied. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is his will that my dear wife and child should no longer abide with me as it is his holy will. I am perfectly reconciled to the sad bereavement, though I deeply mourn my loss. My my dearest Ellie breathed her last on Sunday evening, the same day on which the child was born. I can willingly submit to anything as God strengthens me. Oh, my sister, that you would have him for your God. Though all nature to me is eclipsed, yet I will have joy in knowing that God withholds no good things from them that love and keep his commandments, and he will override this sad, sad bereavement for good. I don't know if you caught the Job quote. That's Job 121. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's quoting Job. It is impossible to respond to suffering like that without a strong relationship with God through Jesus Christ, without a firm faith foundation. That's the only thing that will enable someone to respond to this Mack truck-to-the-face level of suffering in a godly way. And I want to caution us, if we think we're strong enough to handle Uh, this type of suffering without a firm foundation. We are overconfident. We're not unlike Peter when he told the Lord that he was willing to lay down his life for him. Remember that, John? Jesus was talking about going away. He says, Lord, why can't I follow you? And they said, I I will lay down my life for you. And do you remember Jesus' response? He says, will you? Hmm. Will you lay down your life for me? I don't, I don't think so. Not this time. Overconfidence. In the same way, if we think we can handle Mack Truck to the face level suffering without faith in Jesus, we're, we're mistaken. We're deceiving ourselves. Now it's possible to get through it. Let's, let's be frank about this. It's possible to get through this type of suffering without a strong, firm faith foundation. I mean, unbelievers do it, Right? They get through it. But that's not what we're shooting for. We're not shooting for getting through it. We're shooting for glorifying God. Okay, There's a difference. Big difference. And the only way we're going to glorify God is if we have that firm faith foundation. So the question is this. Do you have a strong foundation? Do you have a strong relationship with God through Jesus Christ right now? Do you worship God Continually. Not a one and done. Not a one and done. Here's what I mean by one and done. It's not uncommon for Christian camps to have some sort of commitment night during the week of camp. So maybe midweek or towards the end of the week, there's some kind of gathering of these. These junior high students, they're all brought together in a clear presentation of the Gospels given. And the students are encouraged to respond to that invitation by praying and committing their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And many of them do. And praise God that they do. And I know for a fact that there are some people that that is a very real event. God is using that to propel them on their journey of faith. God uses that moment, maybe even as a turning point in their life, to call them to himself. And I know for a fact that there are some people that have have made that commitment at at camp night and that have gone on to, to worship and serve the Lord for the rest of their lives in a very powerful way. That happens. But I also know that there are many who go through that process and who do not continue on. And that's just the way it is. That's just the the spiritual economy of God. The general call goes out. Some people respond because he has effectually called them. Others do not. We understand that. But here's the problem. The problem is when good intentioned teachers or leaders start telling those that are at that commitment night, they tell them this. No matter what happens for the rest of your life, You are saved. No matter what you do, no matter where you go, no matter how old you get, no matter how much sin you commit, you are in Christ and nothing can separate you from God because you made that commitment and you invited Jesus into your heart. So, what's the problem with that? Well, that's contrary to everything in Scripture, that's not how God operates. God does not respond to people when they snap their fingers and say, I want you in my heart right now. No. No. And we also know that having that in their head, then they are more likely to go out and do just that. Do whatever they want, and go wherever they want, and live the rest of their life, and always be able to point back and say, you know what? I can point back to that night. I said that prayer. I asked God into my heart, and I did that. So no matter what you tell me, pastor, I don't need church. I don't need you to, to, to be on me about this. I'm in Christ. What's the problem with that? No continual faith. No continual faith. Saving faith is continual faith. Saving genuine saving faith is ongoing faith. Unceasing faith. It is continual faith. Do we feed the dog once or continually? Do we brush our teeth once or continually? Do you go to work once or continually? do we hug our kids once or continually genuine saving faith is continual faith continual faith in the one who continues forever hebrews 7:23 through 25 the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office but he jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Job, who was a priest to his family, died. All the old covenant priests that worshipped in the tabernacle and later the temple died. Jesus continues forever. He is alive forever. He continues to hold the priesthood forever. He intercedes forever for his people. He is the guarantor, scripture says, or backer or sponsor or underwriter of the new covenant. The new covenant. We're going to be going to the table in just a moment. And this is one of the two sacraments of the new covenant that Jesus instituted. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup are given and received according to. To the way Jesus prescribed to proclaim his death until he comes. Now why would Jesus give the church a sacrament to proclaim his death until he comes? Notice also that this is an ongoing, in other words, continual sacrament. We are to repeatedly come to the table continually. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus continually point his church back to the cross? Because the cross stands at the center of the new covenant. Without Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without Jesus, there is no atonement or covering of our sin. So he continually points his people back to his death on the cross, to remind them continually of the basis of their faith. You have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the only remedy, the only antidote for the problem of sin. If you turn to Jesus in faith, his sacrifice, his body, his blood on the cross is sufficient to cover your sin so that you no longer have to pay the penalty. You no longer have to stand before God and experience condemnation, judgment, that's gone. In Jesus Christ, because of the cross, repentance of belief leads to faith, but it is a continual faith. It's not a one and done. It's continual. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, completely, At all times, all those who draw near to God through faith in him, draw near to God through continual faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we we begin this book of Job and we see even here, we see your scripture pointing to Christ. as do the sacraments, as do every part of your word, as does faithful proclamation, as does the history of the church, as does everything you've put in place. You you point us back to the object of our faith, and that is the person, Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, and coming again. Father, we thank you for the grace that enables us to sustain a continuing faith in our Lord and Savior. Amen.